It's the 4th of August in the year of our salvation, 2008. And uh, this is Father John Zolsdorf with another podcast. I'm very pleased that I can present another interview with his hermeneuticalness himself, Father Timothy Finnegan, pastor of Black Fen in England. He'll talk to us today about the wonderful conference that was held at Merton College in Oxford this last week on the traditional Latin Mass, the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, sometimes called the Usus Antiquior, or Tridentine Mass. Also, we'll have here two more stories from The Little World of Don Camillo by Giovanni Guareschi. I'm very happy to be back today with the, the pastor of Black Fen, the most popular priest blogger in England. Uh, perhaps, uh, we n- will never, we don't know, maybe the next Archbishop of Westminster, uh, his hermeneuticalness, Father Timothy Finnegan. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Father John. Good to, good to talk to you. Well, you just had a wonderful conference, I understand, at Merton College in Oxford. Uh, tell us all about it. I guess you were involved as a teacher. Yes, that's right. It was a conference for about 40 priests who wanted to learn to celebrate the Mass in the Usus Antiquior. And this year, we divided into different streams. So some priests were learning right from scratch how to say low mass i took a small group of half a dozen priests taking them through the rubrics of low mass but there were also other streams priests who know how to celebrate low mass and wanted to learn about how to sing mass and we also had a number of classes on the sacraments as well those were very enlightening very interesting yeah that could be really useful because i know that a lot of priests uh, I mean, they they learn how to say mass, and there are a lot of good tools out there, videos and and uh, and different things. But if it you know someone approaches them and they want to, uh, for example, they want their baby baptized, or yeah. if there's a marriage, you know, how is a, a how is a a requiem mass different from a regular mass? There are all sorts of things in here that really could be u- very useful. Yes. It, it was interesting, talking to Dr. Lawrence Hemming, who was one of the scholars present at the conference, he gave the first lecture, magnificent lecture, by the way. We're talking to him, and of course the rubrics for the sacraments are a little more fluid than the rubrics for the Mass. Everybody knows the rubrics for the Mass, and they're absolutely set, and you can look at J.B. O'Connell's book and find out exactly where your hands are supposed to be at any particular time. But with the celebration of the sacraments, there was more of an element of local custom, and particularly the use of the vernacular, of course, when you baptize a baby and you interrogate the godparents, you speak to them in the vernacular. And it was quite a common custom to celebrate many of the prayers in the vernacular. You'd keep the form in Latin. Most priests would do the exorcisms in Latin. And the other question that came up from one of the parish priests there was to say, well, is, is this simply the decision of the parish priest? And of course, if you look at Samorum Pontificum, it is. The pastor, in English we, we say parish priest for pastor the pastor can decide that he can give permission for this in his parish it doesn't say that people have to ask for it and for many people coming for baptism perhaps who you know, the priest is trying to encourage back into the practice of their faith now they've got a little baby for them very often the user's antiquial the older form of the rite of baptism may just be something the priest could decide pastorally. This is better for these people. That's really useful because um, I just had a question from from a reader of my own blog uh, a little while ago uh, when I was I was talking about uh, a particular point in the baptismal uh, in the in the baptism rite uh, how how important it was that the language be clear. Uh, for what the priest is doing, you know, he's exercising, for example, yeah. the, the the child or the person to be to be baptized. And I made the comment that this part should be in Latin. And someone came back and asked me, well, how do we know what parts can be in English and what parts must be in Latin? And that really kind of threw me for a loop. 
Yes, I think that by, by 1964, which is the date of the pocket ritual that most priests in England used, you could say all of the prayers in English, but I think many of the priests still um, said the exorcism in Latin. As one priest put it, there's an old saying, well, the child doesn't understand English, but the devil understands Latin. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a very good principle, actually. I mean, it sounds a little facetious to put it that way, but, but I think it's a very, very important principle. That's uh, So I, I imagine... Um, then that uh, quite a few of the priests uh, maybe return visitors uh, because this was is this correct me if I'm wrong was this the second time you had the conference at Merton? It's, it's the second second of our conferences. We had a number of return visitors and a, a much larger faculty for the for the conference. There were a number of other priests who came, and in fact, all the three oratories in England were represented: the Birmingham, Oxford, and London oratories. Um, priests came from all of those to help out with the tuition. There were classes covering the sacraments. The um, the master of Latin at the Oratory School in London came to give some Latin classes, you know, give people a little taster of Latin, encourage them to start learning Latin. And there were also classes on the breviary as well, so that priests who wanted to start saying the 1962 breviary could learn a little bit about it. So, yes, there, there were priests coming back. There were new priests and... The, the atmosphere was, it was a very good conference in terms of uh, priestly support. You know, the, the priests who were there all enjoyed themselves enormously, and some of them said that they don't normally enjoy going to conferences of priests because of the dissension and the difficulties, and you have to start talking to people about very fundamental things like the ordination of women or celibacy or whether humanity Vitae is right. At a conference like this, everyone was agreed on all those issues, and it was just a question of sharing and enjoying being a priest. That, that was one of the keynotes of the conference. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. I guess uh, from, from your blog, uh, I saw this wonderful picture of a bishop vested for what looked like it might have been pontifical vespers. Yes, that's right. Bishop McMahon of Nottingham, Bishop Malcolm McMahon, came and he celebrated pontifical vespers. I was very pleased to assist as a deacon at, at, that, um, at that ceremony. All of the ceremonies were outstanding. And there, there's something important to say about that, too, which we, we, we need to talk about. One of the priests who said, um, I could never do this in my parish. That was, a, that was an interesting strand that came up. But Bishop McMahon, after the Pontifical Vespers, stayed on for the banquet. It was the Thursday night, so the last evening of the conference. There was a special, particularly formal dinner. And he was invited to give a speech afterwards. And it was, it was a wonderful speech. He, some people could say, well, all bishops want to be all things to all men. It certainly wasn't that. He was definitely saying that he, he supported what we were doing, and he was very positive about the older form of the liturgy, the older form of the Mass and the sacraments, and really very encouraging, both in, in his speech after dinner and also in informal comments that he made to other priests afterwards. It was very clear that he was entirely supportive of what we were doing. Now, that's, would you, you would say that that's a different experience than from uh, the kind of support you've gotten from other bishops in, in, in your part of the world? Yes, I think that many English bishops would feel, well, the Pope has said this, so we've got to go along with it, but wouldn't be particularly enthusiastic. And, you know, as it is with groups of priests, you know what the, what the atmosphere is, that what people feel about different things, and you, you would have the general impression that perhaps the English bishops are not terribly enthusiastic about the motu proprio. And that was why it was a very pleasant surprise that Bishop Malcolm McMahon was, was very clearly and sincerely and genuinely enthusiastic about the, the whole prospect of the Merton Conference and teaching priests to celebrate the traditional Mass. Well, this, uh, I, you know, I'm just, I just kick myself for not coming this year. I was going to, I was going to do it, and uh, it just, just at the, you know, kind of the last minute that I thought I could, I could reasonably make it work. I, I said, well, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't go. But I just kick myself. I'm very much hoping that there's going to be a conference next year. Uh, did they talk about that? Well, uh, Father Andrew Wadsworth um, said at the last session that there, there were no concrete plans as yet, but I think that all of the priests who were there would want there to be another conference next year, so I, I very much hope that we can sort something out and make sure that this work continues, because it's something now that's taken off. 
not just the priests who are learning to celebrate low mass for the first time, although there will always be plenty of those, and it's a very important part of the conference, but also priests who have perhaps celebrated the mass before and who are relatively familiar with it, to learn more about the rubrics of the theology of the older form of the mass, perhaps the sacraments that they haven't yet celebrated, or some of the finer points of singing the mass, or the rubrics of high mass. There's a great deal that can be taught there. And for the value of priests getting together in that forum, and the, the, the celebration of the liturgies, people could come, the, the, the liturgies obviously were public, and people could come along, and there was a, a model celebration, if you like, but what used to be done in the seminaries, you know, the seminary always used to be considered as a place where there should be a model celebration of the liturgy. And I'm sure that many seminaries, I know the seminary I teach at at Monash, offers a model celebration of the, of the newer form of, of the Roman rite. In, in every respect, all the rubrics are observed. It's good to have somewhere where there's a model celebration of the older form of the Roman rite as well. Yeah, you, you need a paradigm to, to, okay. to uh, base our, our, our own our own actions on. You know, it's interesting that people can, I mean, they can learn, they certainly learn by doing, but they can learn by watching, too. Yes. But it's interesting, too, that Richard Luzar, who runs a firm collecting old vestments and making new vestments, he brought some of his personal collection along for the vestments, for the, for the masses and for the other offices. So you have vestments that have belonged to Napoleon III and were used for the first time in England processional cross also from that collection, vestments that have been recovered from a Carmelite convent. So absolutely beautiful vestments and all the different um, physical things that are associated with the liturgy. Also the music, the Scola Saint-Cécile from France, they came along and uh, sang all the plain songs during the week, and also their trademark Faux Bourdon, uh, interpretation of plain chant. And on the last day, Andrew Knowles, um, who's the organist at the Oxford Oratory, had a magnificent choir to sing Hassler's Missa Sine Nomine, and so we had both plain song and polyphony at the same mass. Now, of course, most parishes can't put that on, but it's good to be able to see it there, and those pieces of music sung in the context for which they were composed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so often our, our wonderful treasury of sacred music has been relegated to a concert. Uh, and so we lose a, we lose a sense of the music itself. I mean, it's uh, perfectly possible to enjoy it on a CD, but it, it doesn't really accomplish what it was meant to accomplish until it is in the context of the Roman liturgy. That's right. And it, of course, at Merton College, the chapel there was built and founded. Merton College goes back to the early 13th century. And the chapel was, of course, a Catholic chapel for several centuries before the Protestant Reformation. And it was wonderful that you, you could have all these priests in choir and the celebration of Mass, probably very similar to the celebration of Mass as it, as it was when the college was founded. Of course, in those days, it would have been the Serum Rite. But the difference between the Serum Rite and the Tridentine Roman Rite would be much, much less than the difference between the Usus Antiquior and the Usus Recensior. Yeah, you know, Merton College, I have always a, a kind of a soft spot for Merton College among all the colleges, not because, of course, I went to Oxford or anything, but, but because that's where, uh, Professor, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was, was, uh, was teaching, and, um, oh, yes. who uh, was uh, instrumental in, in my conversion to the Catholic Church, but that's another story. In any event, um, look, uh, you, uh, you were teaching the priests there, and uh, certainly I, I'm sure that you got some got a chance to talk about them, uh, talk about the the mass and their impressions uh, of it uh, once you had you know shown them things. And what are there any are there any comments that maybe some of the new priests learning the old mass for the first time might have made to you that stuck in your mind? Well, yes. What well, one of the priests said, he looked at the the celebration of the liturgy, the first solemn high mass that we had. Incidentally, the, the masses were, were celebrated in different ways. Ideally, of course, that it, where you have the opportunity to do it, there should always be solemn mass. But two of the days, we had a Missa Cantata in its more solemn and more simple form as demonstrations, really, in a way, that priests could see how these were celebrated. And one priest looked at the, the solemn mass on the first day, and he said, I could never do this in my parish. And what I tried to explain to the clergy there was that, look, once you've learnt this, once you've been through, you've had a walk through the solemn high mass, you've got a little bit used to it, there's nothing else to learn. 
You never have to be creative. You never have to make anything up. There's nothing new. There's nothing more to learn. Once you've got these rubrics under your belt, that's it. And then you, you just become more and more familiar with them. And there's a certain liberation there that we are not creating the liturgy. What we're doing is drawing from something that's presented for us, or as Dr. Lawrence Hemming put it, it's something that's given to us by God. We can look back into the, into the precursors of the Roman liturgy in the Old Testament and see that this is something which isn't just made up and reformed and something that we make. This is something that we receive and something that we, we draw grace from. And that was something I think we wanted to get across to people as part of their experience of celebrating the Roman rite. And of course, especially important for a priest to be liberated from being the center of attention, being some kind of radio disc jockey or television presenter, that he can just take part in the liturgy of the Mass, celebrate it as it's, as it's there in, in the Missal, as we, as we would say, read the black, do the red, to do that, and then to go into the liturgy, then to draw strength from it, to draw grace from it. Yeah, you make a you make a very good point too. You have a practical point that I, I think sometimes uh, a, a priest who's very devout and reverent and really wants to do things the correct way might fall into the trap of of having the the better be the enemy of the good. You know, where he's afraid to do anything because he's not quite sure he's going to be able to do it perfectly. Yes, that's right. We, we try to tackle this in the conference by encouraging the priests to celebrate Mass. And all of the tutors were available quite early in the morning. It was a rather tiring conference physically. And early in the morning, we were available to help priests to celebrate Mass or to offer them the opportunity for a dry Mass. And we would step them through and we could do it more informally. Yeah, now, dry, uh, just to clarify for someone who's listening, you know, priests, priests, priests and, you know, kind of know what a dry mass is. It's like when you're, you're practicing, uh, going through mass, uh, maybe with the help, uh, a couple interruptions, maybe here and there, but basically it's, it's not really pretending to say mass, but it's, it's saying, it's going through the it's going through the texts and rubrics and so forth, just as if you were saying mass, but without the intention to consecrate and and yes. that thing for the purpose of learning. You see, yes, a, a rehearsal we could say a rehearsal of the mass so that yeah. the priest can, and it's a, it's a matter of respect for the mass. So the priests don't want to try and celebrate mass when they're going to get things wrong, so they'd rather have a run through and get things right and then celebrate it. But we did encourage priests to, to celebrate the Mass, even if they, they felt a little bit unsure, with one of the priest tutors there to serve the Mass, answer the responses, and perhaps give them a little hint here and, here and there. Because, as I said to some of the priests, look, the guys who, who used to say this Mass, they grew up, they were all to servers. They, they, knew, how, they knew all the responses before, before they were in secondary school, and they probably knew most of what the priests said. By the time they got to seminary, they were completely familiar with it. Had six years in seminary, participating in the liturgy and many months of mass practices of course they, they were familiar with the mass by the time they were ordained these guys are having to kind of jump in at a, in a much more difficult way and so we try to encourage them not not to be frightened not to you know, not to hold back too much but to celebrate the mass because then if they were if they're doing things devoutly and trying their best then of course practice would make perfect and they get more used to the rubrics and the, the actions and also to, to come back again, you know, perhaps to come back to Merton, have a, have a run through the Mass with somebody who can look at what they're doing and to correct them. And we all found that, even the tutors, of course, you know, we, we were correcting each other. We, no, nobody's perfect, and we made mistakes as well here and there. And it, it's good. As Seneca said, one of my favorite quotations from Seneca, homines dum docent discunt, men, when they teach, learn. And when you, when you teach the rubrics of the older form of the Mass, you also learn for yourself as well, and you you get a, a little more um, well, a little more perfect. We want to be perfect in the celebration of mass. None of this is perfect, but we approach that perfection a little more closely if we help others to to learn to celebrate the mass. Yeah, you know, I, in just listening to you talk about this conference, uh, I get I get a sense that uh, there's a momentum building slowly but surely you know it's been less than a year for summorum pontificum to be in effect you know but uh, we're coming up on a year's time but it's still it's less than a year and i keep hearing 
these very encouraging things from all different parts of the world, uh, it just seems to me that there's a momentum building up. I certainly got that impression at the conference. And there are 40 more priests who now know how to say the old mass. But also there was something, and the way I summarized it was to say, this is now unstoppable, not just juridically. One of the things that I try to help priests with is that in terms of its juridical status, we, we talked about the relationship with bishops and so on, and the relationship that bishops have with the universal church. A bishop doesn't have the authority to, to forbid this mass because the, the Holy Father, the supreme legislator, has given the authority to celebrate this Mass, what he said that you don't need any other permission. But leaving aside even the juridical questions, I did get the strong impression that this is unstoppable in practice, that priests and people are beginning to see there's a great treasure that we've lost in the Church. It's something that can be recovered, not just because we're enthusiasts of it, because, but because this will help people to participate actively in the Mass. And it's something that that can't be held back. Once people understand this, and that this is, for, for many people, a new way of celebrating Mass and participating in Mass as lay people, and, and given that the Holy Father has removed all the obstacles from celebrating the Mass, I think it's unstoppable in practice as well as juridically. Especially given uh, that a lot of priests... Uh, younger guys don't have they're not lugging around the baggage of the 60s you know they didn't have to go through the traumatic changes that so many priests uh, endured in those times you know there's a sometimes it occurs to me that that the these priests what they experienced at the time of the reform must have been so difficult that just the idea of going back is hard for them even to fathom, and so they resist the idea, maybe, of the older Mass. But the, the younger guys don't have that baggage. That's certainly true. This is one of the things I dealt with in my lecture on the Samoran Pontificum in the parish context, the different objections that people have to it. And one of the objections is, well, we're going back. It's an objection made by people who were young adults in the immediate post-conciliar era, especially, it's made by others too, I mean, these are all generalizations. But a lot of people who grew up and were enthusiastic, perhaps went to a parish club or apostolic group in that time, were told that everything in the past was bad, and now we're all changing all of that and it's all great. And they associate that with the good experiences of their youth, and some very good priests who help them to, to, to find their faith and to live it. But they're rejecting a mythical past. There were some bad things, of course, in the, in the preconciliar church. We all know that. There were also many, many good things. But some people in that particular era, the Soissons without, the, the people who grew up just after the Second Vatican Council, had a mythical evil past presented to them, which, of course, they rejected and therefore never want to go back to. Whereas, of course, on the contrary, the, the um, generation of young parents now and their children, young lads who are learning to serve the Mass, um, parents who are coming along and seeing their children enthusiastic about the, the faith, enthusiastic about the liturgy, they, ha they don't have that baggage, they don't have that kind of preconception of the terrible past that we had to get away from. And of course, this is all about the hermeneutic of continuity, the title of my blog, that the, the Holy Father has spoken about this, that the Second Vatican Council should not be interpreted in terms of a complete break with the past, but rather as something that's in con continuity with all the riches of the Church's tradition. And of course the, the, the quotation from Samoran Pontificum, which was spoken of many times over the Merton Conference, what was sacred for previous generations, it's sacred and great for us too. Yeah. very much a sense of what we got at this week. If it was sacred then, it's sacred now. That's right. Uh, yeah. that's right. Well, Father, tell, us how to, tell the listeners how to get to your blog. Okay, I'm Father Tim Finnegan, the hermeneutic of con continuity. If you just tap in Father Tim Finnegan blog, you'll find it on Google. Or if you put in hermeneutic, you'll probably find it there too. Now you're a, but you're a 2i Finnegan, right? Yes, F-I-N-I-G-A-N. I was celebrating on Tuesday the Missa Cantata in the more solemn form, and the preacher was Father Sean Finnegan, F-I-N-N-E-G-A-N 
We hoped that that might enable people to distinguish between us, but it didn't work. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to have a 2i Finnegan and a 2n Finnegan. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Father. Your hermeneuticalness, I should say, uh, for for your time. And uh, let's do this again real soon, okay? Sure, yeah. It's good, it's good to hear from you, and all the best to your listeners. Well, now that we've heard from the parish priest of Blackfen in England, his hermeneuticalness, let's turn to hear about another parish priest, this time in an, a little town in northern Italy near the Po River in the time just after World War II, when there was a mighty struggle going on in Italy between political communists and the Christian Democrats backed by the church. I'm talking, of course of stories from The Little World of Don Camillo by Giovanni Guareschi. Now, the main characters in this first book, The Little World, are, of course, the parish priest, Don Camillo Tarocci, a big man with hands like shovels and quite a temper, and his nemesis, the communist mayor, nicknamed Pepone, and the large crucifix in the parish church, with whom Don Camilo converses on a regular basis about life, the universe, and everything. These wonderful stories by Giovanni Guareschi effectively blend together wonderful insight into the human condition along with a real solid applied Catholic faith. They're all written with a Catholic worldview. So let's have two more stories now from The Little World of Don Camilo. I started these in podcasts 66 and 67, and they are taken from the first in a series of books by Giovanni Guareschi, this one called The Little World of Don Camilo, translated by Una Vicenzo Trubridge, published in 1950 by Pellegrini and Cutting. Out of Bounds Don Camillo used to go back and measure the famous crack in the church tower, and every morning his inspection met with the same result. The crack got no wider, but neither did it get smaller. Finally, he lost his temper, and the day came when he sent the sacristan to the town hall. "'Go and tell the mayor to come at once and look at this damage. "'Explain that the matter is serious.' "'The sacristan went and returned. "'Pepone says you will take your word for it, and that it is a serious matter. "'He also said that if you really want to show him the crack, "'you had better take the tower to him in his office. "'He will be there until five o'clock.' "'Don Camillo didn't bat an eye.' 
All he said was, "'If Papone or any member of his gang has the courage to turn up at mass tomorrow morning, I'll fix them. But they know it, and probably not one of them will come.' The next morning there was not a sign of a red in church, but five minutes before mass was due to begin, the sound of marching was heard outside the church. In perfect formation, all the reds, not only those of the village, but also those of the neighboring cells, including the cobbler Bilo, who had a wooden leg, and Roldo de Prati, who was shivering with fever, came marching proudly toward the church, led by Peppone. They took their places in the church, sitting in a solid phalanx with faces as ferocious as Russian generals. Don Camillo finished his sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan with a brief plea to the faithful. As you know, a most dangerous crack is threatening the church tower. I therefore appeal to you, my dear brethren, to come to the assistance of the house of God. In using the term brethren, I am addressing those who came here with a desire to draw near to God, and not certain people who come only in order to parade their militarism. To such as these it can matter nothing should the tower fall to the ground. The mass over, Don Camilo settled himself at a table near the door, and the congregation filed past him. Each one, after making the expected donation, joined the crowd in the little square in front of the church to watch developments. And last of all came Peppone, followed by his battalion in perfect formation. They drew to a defiant halt before the table. Peppone stepped forward proudly. From this tower in the past the bells have hailed the dawn of freedom, and from it Tomorrow they shall welcome the glorious dawn of the proletarian revolution, Peppone said to Don Camillo, as he laid on the table three large red handkerchiefs full of money. Then he turned on his heel and marched away, followed by his gang, and Roldo de Prati was shaking with fever and could scarcely remain on his feet, but he held his head erect and the crippled Bilo, as he passed to Don Camillo, stamped his wooden leg defiantly in perfect step with his comrades. When Don Camillo went to the Lord to show him the basket containing the money, and told him that there was more than enough for the repair of the tower, Christ smiled in astonishment. "'I guess your sermon did the trick, Don Camillo.' "'Naturally,' replied Don Camillo. "'You see,' You understand humanity, but I know Italians. Up to that point Don Camillo had behaved pretty well, but he made a mistake when he sent a message to Peppone saying that he admired the military smartness of the men, but advising Peppone to give them more intensive drilling in the right-about face and the double, which they would need badly on the day of the proletarian revolution. This was deplorable, and Peppone planned to retaliate. Don Camillo was an honest man, but in addition to an overwhelming passion for hunting, he possessed a splendid double-barreled gun and a good supply of cartridges. Moreover, Baron Stocco's private reserve lay only three miles from the village. It presented a permanent temptation because not only game, but even the neighborhood poultry had learned uh, that they were in safety behind the fence of wire netting. It was therefore not astonishing that on a certain evening Don Camillo, his cassock bundled into an enormous pair of breeches, and his face partly concealed beneath the brim of an old felt hat, should find himself actually on the business side of the baron's fence. The flesh is weak, and the flesh of the sportsman particularly so. Nor was it surprising, since Don Camillo was a good shot, that he brought down a fine rabbit almost under his nose. He stuffed it into his game bag and was making a getaway when he suddenly came face to face with another trespasser. 
there was no alternative but to butt the stranger in the stomach with the hope of knocking him out and thereby saving the countryside the embarrassment of learning that their parish priest had been caught poaching. Unfortunately, the stranger conceived the same idea at the same moment. The two heads met with a crack that left both men side by side on the ground seeing stars. "'A skull as hard as that can only belong to our beloved mayor,' muttered Don Camillo, as his vision began to clear. "'A skull as hard as that can only belong to our beloved priest,' replied Pepone, scratching his head. For Pepone, too, was poaching on forbidden ground, and he, too, had a fine rabbit in his game-bag. His eyes gleamed as he observed Don Camillo. "'Never would I have believed that the very man who preaches respect for other people's property would be found breaking through the fences of a preserve to go poaching,' said Pepone." nor would I have believed that our chief citizen, our comrade, mayor, citizen, yes, but also comrade, Pepone interrupted, and therefore, perverted by those diabolical theories of the fair distribution of all property, and therefore acting more in accordance with his known views than the Reverend Don Camillo, who, for his part, this ideological analysis was suddenly interrupted. Someone was approaching them, and was so near that it was quite impossible to escape without the risk of stopping a bullet, for the intruder happened to be a gamekeeper. "'We've got to do something,' whispered Don Camillo. "'Think of the scandal if we are recognized.' "'Personally, I don't care,' replied Pepone, with composure. "'I am always ready to answer for my actions.' The steps drew nearer, and Don Camillo crouched against a large tree-trunk. Pepone made no attempt to move, and when the gamekeeper appeared with his gun over his arm, Pepone greeted him. "'Good evening.' "'What are you doing here?' inquired the gamekeeper. "'Looking for mushrooms.' "'With a gun?' "'As good a way as another.' The means whereby a gamekeeper can be rendered innocuous are fairly simple." If one happens to be standing behind him, it suffices to muffle his head unexpectedly in an overcoat and give him a good crack on the head. Then advantage can be taken of his momentary unconsciousness to reach the fence and scramble over it. Once over, all is well. Don Camillo and Pepone found themselves sitting behind a bush a good mile away from the baron's estate. Don Camillo, sighed Pepone, we have committed a serious offense. We have raised our hands against one in authority. Don Camillo, who had actually been the one to raise them, broke out in a cold sweat. My conscience troubles me, continued Pepone, watching his companion closely. I shall have no peace. How can I go before a priest of God and ask for forgiveness for such a misdeed? It was an evil day when I listened to the infamous Muscovite doctrine, forgetting the holy precepts of Christian charity. Don Camillo was so deeply humiliated that he wanted to cry. On the other hand, he also wanted to land one good crack on the skull of his perverted adversary. As Pepone was well aware of this, he stopped talking for the moment. Then suddenly he shouted, "'Accursed temptation!' and pulled the rabbit out of his bag and threw it on the ground. "'Accursed indeed!' shouted Don Camillo, and hauling out his own rabbit he flung it far into the snow and walked away with bent head. Pepone followed him as far as the crossroad and then turned to the right. "'By the way,' he said, pausing for a moment, could you tell me of a reputable parish priest in this neighborhood to whom I could go and confess this sin? Don Camillo clenched his fists and walked straight ahead. When he had gathered sufficient courage, Don Camillo went before the main altar of the church. I didn't do it to save myself, Lord, he said. I did it simply because, if it were known that I go poaching, the church would have been the chief sufferer from the scandal. But Christ remained silent. 
Now, whenever this happened, Don Camilo acquired a fever, and put himself on a diet of bread and water for days and days, until Christ felt sorry for him and said, Enough! This time Christ said nothing until the bread and water diet had continued for seven days. Don Camillo was so weak that he could remain standing only by leaning against a wall, and his stomach was rumbling from hunger. Then Pippone came to confession. I have sinned against the law and against Christian charity, said Pippone. I know it, replied Don Camillo. What you don't know is that, as soon as you were out of sight, I went back and collected both of the rabbits. I have roasted one and stewed the other. Just what I supposed you would do, murmured Don Camillo. And when he passed the altar a little later, Christ smiled at him, not so much because of the prolonged fast as because Don Camillo, when he murmured, Just what I supposed you would do, had felt no desire to hit Pepone. Instead, he had felt profound shame, recalling that on that same evening he himself had had a momentary temptation to do exactly the same thing. "'Poor Don Camillo,' whispered Christ tenderly. And Don Camillo spread out his arms as though he wished to say that he did his best, and that if he sometimes made mistakes it was not deliberately. "'I know, I know, Don Camillo,' replied the Lord. And now you get along and eat your rabbit, for Pepone has left it for you nicely cooked in your kitchen. The Treasure One day Zmiltso came to the rectory. He was a young ex-partisan who had been Pepone's orderly during the fighting in the mountains and now worked as a messenger at the town hall. He was the bearer of a handsome letter, printed on handmade paper with the party heading in Gothic lettering, which read, Your Honor is invited to grace with his presence a ceremony of a social nature, which will take place tomorrow at ten o'clock a.m. in the Plaza of Liberty. The secretary of the section, Comrade Botazzi, Mayor Giuseppe. Don Camillo looked severely at Smilzo. "'Tell comrade Pepone, Mayor Giuseppe, that I have no wish to go and listen to the usual imbecilities against reaction and the capitalists. I already know them by heart.' "'No,' explains Milzo. "'There won't be any political speeches. This is for patriotism and social activities. If you refuse, it means that you don't understand democracy.' Don Camillo nodded his head slowly. "'If that's it,' he said, "'then I have nothing more to say. "'Good, and the mayor says you are to come in uniform "'and bring all your paraphernalia.' "'Paraphernalia?' "'Yes, a pail of holy water and all that stuff. "'There is something to be blessed.' "'Zmilzo got away with talking this way to Don Camillo "'precisely because he was Zmilzo, that is, the lean one. "'He was so skinny and quick.' that during the fighting in the mountains he had been known to slip between the bullets. Therefore, by the time the heavy book Don Camillo hurled at him reached the spot where his head had been, Zmilzo was already on his bike pedaling away for all he was worth. Don Camillo got up, rescued the book, and went to the church to let off steam. When he reached the altar, he said, Lord... I must find out what those people are planning to do tomorrow. I've never heard of anything so mysterious. What is the meaning of all those preparations, all those branches that they are sticking into the ground around the meadow between the drug store and Baghetti's house? What kind of deviltry can they be up to? My son, if it were deviltry, first of all, they wouldn't be doing it in the open and secondly they wouldn't be sending for you to bless it. Be patient until tomorrow. That evening Don Camilo went to have a look around, but saw nothing but branches and decorations surrounding the meadow, and nobody seemed to know anything. When he set out next morning, followed by two acolytes, his knees were trembling. 
he felt that something was not as it should be, that there was treachery in the air. An hour later he returned, shattered and with a temperature. "'What happened?' asked Christ from the altar. "'Enough to make one's hair stand on end,' stammered Don Camillo. "'A terrible thing! A band! Garibaldi's hymn! A speech from Pepone! And the laying of the first stone of the people's palace! And I had to bless the stone, while Pepone chuckled with joy!' and the ruffian asked me to say a few words, and I had to make a suitable little address, because although it is a party affair, that dog dressed it up as a social undertaking. Don Camilo paced back and forth in the empty church. Then he came to a standstill in front of Christ. A mere trifle, he exclaimed, an assembly hall, reading room, library, gymnasium, dispensary, and theater, a skyscraper of... Two floors with ground for sports and bowling, and the whole lot for the miserable sum of ten million lire. Not bad, given the high cost of building today, observed Christ. Don Camilo sank down in a pew. Lord, he moaned, why have you done this to me? Don Camilo, you are unreasonable. No, I'm not unreasonable. For ten years I have been praying to you on my knees to find me a little money so that I could build a library, an assembly hall for the young people, a playground for the children with a merry-go-round and swings, and possibly a little swimming pool. For ten years I have humbled myself to bloated landowners when I would have preferred smacking them between the eyes every time I saw them. I must have organized two hundred bazaars, and knocked at easily two thousand doors, and I have nothing at all to show for it. Then this excommunicate dog comes along, and behold, ten million lira drop into his pockets from heaven. Christ shook his head. They didn't fall from heaven, he replied. He found them underground. I had nothing to do with it, Don Camilo. It is entirely due to his own personal initiative. Don Camilo spread out his arms. Then the obvious deduction is that I am a poor fool. He went off to stamp up and down his study in the rectory, roaring with fury. He had to exclude the possibility that Pepone had got those ten million by holding people up on the roads or by robbing a bank. He thought of the days of the liberation when Pepone came down from the mountains, and it seemed as if the proletarian revolution might break out at any moment. Pepone must have threatened those cowards of gentry and squeezed their money out of them, he said to himself. Then he remembered that in those days there had been no landowners in the neighborhood, but that there had been a detachment of the British army which arrived simultaneously with Pepone and his men. The British moved in to the landowners' houses, replacing the Germans who had stripped them of everything of any value. Therefore, Pepone couldn't have got the ten million by looting. Maybe the money came from Russia. He burst out laughing. Was it likely that the Russians should give a thought to Pepone? At last he returned to church. Lord, he begged, from the foot of the altar. "'Won't you tell me where Pepone found the money?' "'Don Camilo,' replied Christ with a smile, "'do you take me for a private detective? "'Why ask God to tell you the truth "'when you have only to seek it within yourself? "'Look for it, Don Camilo, "'and meanwhile, in order to distract your mind, "'why not make a trip to the city?' The following evening, when he got back from his excursion to the city, Don Camilo went before Christ in a condition of extreme agitation. "'What has upset you, Don Camilo?' "'Something quite mad!' exclaimed Don Camilo breathlessly. "'I have met a dead man, face to face in the street!' "'Don Camilo, calm yourself and reflect. "'Usually the dead whom one meets face to face in the street are alive.' "'This one cannot be!' shouted Don Camillo. "'This one is as dead as mutton, and I know it because I myself carried him to the cemetery.' 
"'If that is the case,' Christ replied, "'then I have nothing more to say. "'You must have seen a ghost.' Don Camilo shrugged his shoulders. Of course not. Ghosts don't exist except in the minds of hysterical women. And therefore? Well, muttered Don Camilo. Don Camilo collected his thoughts. The deceased had been a thin young man who lived in a nearby village, and Don Camilo had seen him from time to time before the war. He had come down from the mountains with Pepone and his men, and had been wounded in the head. Pepone put him up in the house which had been the German headquarters, and which that day became the headquarters of the British command. Pepone had his office in the room next to the invalid. Don Camilo remembered it all clearly. The villa was surrounded by sentries three deep, and not a fly could leave it, because the British were still fighting nearby and were particularly careful of their own skins. All this had happened one morning, and on the same evening the young man died. Pepone sent for Don Camillo toward midnight, but by the time he got there the young man was already in his coffin. The British didn't want the body in the house, and so, at about noon, Pepone and his most trusted men carried out the coffin covered with the Italian flag. A detachment of British soldiers had kindly volunteered to supply military honors. Don Camillo recalled that the ceremony had been most moving. The whole village had walked behind the coffin, which had been placed on a gun carriage. He himself had officiated, and his sermon before the body was lowered into the grave had people actually weeping. Pepone, in the front row, had sobbed. "'I certainly know how to express myself when I put my mind to it,' said Don Camillo to himself complacently, recalling the episode. Then he took up his train of thought. "'And in spite of all that,' I could swear that the young man I met to-day in the city was the same one I followed to the grave. He sighed, Such is life. The following day Don Camilo paid a visit to Pepone at his workshop, where he found him lying on his back underneath a car. Good morning, comrade Mayor. I want to tell you that for the past two days I've been thinking over your description of the people's palace. "'And what do you think of it?' jeered Pepone. "'Magnificent! "'It has made me decide to work on that scheme of a little place "'with the bathing-pool, garden, sports-ground, theatre, etc., "'which, as you know, I have planned for the past ten years. "'I expect to lay the foundation stone next Sunday. "'It would give me great pleasure if you, as mayor, would attend the ceremony.' "'Willingly!' "'Courtesy for courtesy. "'Meanwhile, you might try to trim down the plans for your own place a bit. "'It looks too big for my taste.' "'Pepone stared at him in amazement. "'Don Camilo, are you crazy?' "'No more than when I conducted a funeral "'and made a patriotic address over a coffin "'that can't have been securely closed, "'because only yesterday I met the corpse walking about in the city.' Pepone sneered. What are you trying to insinuate? Nothing. Merely that the coffin to which the British presented arms was full of what you found in the cellars of that villa where the German command had hidden it, and that the dead man was alive and hidden in the attic. Ah, old Pepone, the same old story, an attempt to malign the partisan movement. Leave the partisans out of it. They don't interest me. And he walked away while Pepone stood muttering vague threats. That same evening, Don Camilo was reading the paper and waiting for Pepone. He arrived, accompanied by Brusco and two other prominent supporters, the same men who had acted as pallbearers. You, said Pepone, can drop your insinuations. It was all of its stuff looted by the Germans. Silver, cameras, instruments, gold, etc. If we hadn't taken it, the British would have. We took 
the only possible means of getting it out of the place. I have witnesses and receipts. Nobody has touched so much as a lira. Ten million was taken, and ten million will be spent for the people. Brusco, who was hot-tempered, began to shout that it was God's truth, and that he, if necessary, knew well enough how to deal with certain people. So do I, Don Camillo replied calmly. He dropped the newspaper which he had been holding in front of him, and it was easy to see that under his right armpit he held the famous Tommy gun that once belonged to Pepone. Brusco turned pale, but Pepone held up his hands. Don Camillo, there's no need to quarrel. I agree, replied Don Camillo. In fact, I agree all the way around. Ten million was acquired, and ten million will be spent for the people. Seven on your people's palace, and three on my recreation center for the people's children. Suffer the little children to come unto me. I ask only what is my due. The four consulted together for a moment in undertones. Then Pepone spoke. If you didn't have that damnable thing in your hands, I'd tell you that your suggestion is the filthiest blackmail in the world. On the following Sunday, Pepone, together with all the village council, assisted at the laying of the first stone of Don Camillo's recreation center. Pepone also made a short speech. However, he was able to whisper in Don Camillo's ear, "'It might be better to tie this stone around your neck and throw you in the po.'" That evening Don Camillo went to report to Christ. "'Well?' "'What do you think about it?' he said after he had described the events of the day. "'Exactly what Pepone said, that if you didn't have the damnable thing in your hands, I should say that it was the filthiest blackmail in the world.' "'But I have nothing at all in my hands except the check that Pepone has just given me.' "'Precisely,' whispered Christ." And with that three million you're going to do so many beautiful things, Don Camillo, that I haven't the heart to scold you. Don Camillo genuflected and went off to bed to dream of a garden full of children, a garden with a merry-go-round and a swing, and on the swing sat Pepone's youngest son, Libero Camillo Lenin, chirping joyfully like a fledgling. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. This is Father John Zulsdorf, Father Z, or Father Zed, as I am often called. Please come and visit at the blog. That's What Does the Prayer Really Say? WDTPRS.com. If you didn't get that, that's Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra.com. You can also Google Father Z and you'll come up with it. Uh, when you visit the blog, you can participate in various discussions. It's quite interesting there. You can use the donation button on the left sidebar and, or on the entry for these podcasts. You can also find uh, telephone numbers, both in the UK and in the USA, to leave me voice mails. They go into my Skype voicemail. 
the voicemail for Skype. If you have a Skype address, it's pretty easy. It's, uh, once again, WDTPRS. That's it. What does the prayer really say? And uh, otherwise, on the uh, U.S. side, you can dial 651-314-4554. And in the U.K., it's 020-8123-1545. I hope you do leave voicemail. They're very interesting. and Sometimes I can incorporate them into these podcasts. Just don't expect me to be calling you back or that I'm going to answer if you call those numbers. They go straight into voicemail. So please pray for me as I will for you.